Welcome back to Mental Status, a podcast created by psychology students for psychology students. We're your hosts, Yash. And I'm Josh. And our aim is to demystify the pathway to becoming a psychologist and share with you what we've learned along the way. I'm actually so excited about this series. It's called What It Takes to Get Into a Masters of Psychology. Okay. <laughs> it's a very well, long name. Maybe today's episode is called that. Yeah. The so, series itself we can decide on. In this guest series, we will interview these mystical humans who have made it into a psychology master's program around Australia and dissect exactly what grades and experience they got to make it into these highly competitive programs. So if you are anything like myself in undergrad... I didn't know anyone in the psychology industry and the prospect of getting into masters seemed so unachievable. So hopefully this series will be a godsend for you. Should we do our mental status for the week? Yeah, let's do it. The freaking These jets. God. River stage sucks. <laughs> People from that aren't from Brisbane just would not understand what the hell. <laughs> We're going through a war up here. Because I was at work when I first heard the planes and I'm like, is this the what's that book called? The war book. Oh, Tomorrow when the war began. Yes. I was like what in the Tomorrow When the War Began stuff is this? The and I was freaking out. Everyone was just, like, so calm. And I was like, guys, what is that? Like, what is that noise? <laughs> and, yeah, everyone explained to me, like, river fire. And I'm like, what is river fire? I'm scared. Like, what's going on? The first river fire after that movie came out must have just had so many, like, oh. 10-year-olds going, ah. I know. Anyway. That's hilarious. Back to my mental status of the week. You know what? Not actually a pretty good week. I still... I'm relatively dysthymic, but we won't, we won't get into that. But some exciting things have been happening on the Aussie psych student front. What was your mental status for the week? Mental status right now is pretty good, I would say. I have been consistent at the gym. And you think that's been helping a lot, the gym? Oh, I've been loving the gym. I've just started at a new gym and, yeah, I'm obsessed. Were you nervous going into a new gym? Yeah, absolutely. Always, always nervous. But... I don't know, it's it's exciting and then you get to meet new people and you get to work out a no. different way. <laughs> no, 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 no. That's really nice. I'm really happy for you, Joe. <laughs> Thanks, love. <laughs> you can't say that. Thanks, uh, uh, buddy, co-host. <laughs> All right, so let's get into the series. So it kind of made sense that the first interview for this guest series would be the co-host, Josh. <laughs> and yeah, let's get into the structured questions. <laughs> okay, yep, I'm ready. So my first question is, what master's program are you currently studying? I am currently doing my Master of Clinical Psychology. So I've been doing that full-time uh-huh. and I've been doing it for the last 18 months. Mm-hmm. So yes, I'm in the home stretch now. My second question is, can you tell us about a little bit about your pathway. So how did you get to this Masters of Clinical Psychology? Okay, I would say that I had um, probably one of the more common pathways to getting in. Mm -hmm. Um, It was also quite consistent compared to a lot of people. So I started doing my uh, Bachelor of Behavioral Science, which is the psychology sequence, so APAC accredited. Um, I did that for a year before adding on a business degree because that's what I thought I would end up in. I kind of had psychology as just a little side interest. 
cool. And then it wasn't until a conveniently timed um, pandemic that kind of made me reflect and think about how I want to spend my actual career and whether that was in business the way that it was or whether it's in psychology. So, um, yeah, I had to do an extra unit, I think, before I could apply to honours. But I was fortunate. I got into honours at the same uni that I did my undergrad, did my fourth year honours, did my thesis, put myself in a hole to get through that year. Um, and then at the end of it, luckily, again, my my dream program to get into was also at the same uni. So it was the Master of Clinical Psych. What I think might be special about that, or at least unique from what I've seen, is that there isn't a lot of people who went straight through. So a lot of the people we know in our masters have either had other experiences between the degrees, taken a couple of years to work in the field. So maybe you're not the first. You're not the best person for me to interview for the first time, <laughs> since you're a mi- minority. And I am so. a I am a unique student, <laughs> but a professional student at that. A prototype. You've come straight from honors. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, that's where I'm up to now. It's very interesting, these structured questions. It feels very jolted. All right, my next question. Number three, what grades did you get to get into master's? What grades did I get? Oh, I have to get my um, academic transcript up. Um, He's got receipts. Actually... <laughs> <laughs> okay, so I've... Laptop just died. <laughs> Are we keeping the part about me, the computer dying? Yeah. Okay, we're winging it. But from what I can remember, during my undergrad, I graduated with a 5.938 GPA. Mm-hmm. So basically, on the grand scheme of things, I, you know, mostly got sixes, a couple of fives, a couple of sevens. It came out there. And thankfully, that was enough to get into my honours. During honours, I dialed it up a little bit. I put everything I could into it, knowing how competitive it is to get into the masters. And yeah, I did quite well. So I think I I got a first class honours. What does that mean? So that means that I had a GPA of six point five or higher. Whoa. <laughs> so um yeah. Does, I, that, does, does that only calculate for the honours? Yes. So okay. the honours grades, are, that's purely for my honours year. Yeah. Essentially, I just tried to get sevens at every subject. I think I missed out on one of the subjects. But half of your grades come from your honours thesis. So really at the end of it, it all came down to what I got in my thesis, almost regardless of what I got in the other subjects. But, yep, I managed to scrape over with the high distinction in my thesis and, yeah, graduated with a six-point... What did you What did you get on your thesis? Like, what was your grade? So it was a high distinction. So it was seven, and it doesn't matter the percentage. They just take the fact that it's a over eighty five percent, which is what we deem a high distinction or a mm. seven. And I know that these are the structured questions, but didn't you get an award? <laughs> so, yes. What um, was it called? I think I shared it with someone else as well. Uh huh. But the thesis prize. So. What does that mean? Um, it's the thesis which receives the highest commendation for your cohort. So basically the thesis, which from what I understand, got the highest grade. <laughs> Whoa. But didn't you get a higher thesis award than me? Yeah, you can interview me. <laughs> it's fine. Yeah. Um, yeah, that's epic. 
All right. Going on to my next question. What experience did you have to get into Masters? Okay. So I would say that my main experience that I had came from volunteering at Lifeline as a crisis supporter. Mm. So I had lots of other experience in other professions or doing other work, other skills and qualities and competencies, but that was definitely the main thing. I would recommend it for anyone who's an undergrad, something which you will hear a lot about the undergraduate degree is that there's not really any opportunity to get experience. It's all very coursework and theory and you can get to honours and feel like you can get to the master's applications Mm. and feel like you have no idea how to do it all. Mm. So getting experience is pretty crucial, I think, Um, and Lifeline is renowned. Um, It's renowned by, you know, master's recruiters, I would say. Pretty much anyone who is in the psychology field has had experience with people who have been crisis supporters. But what I will say just quickly about that is that you volunteer once you've received accreditation as a crisis supporter, but you have to pay to get your accreditation. Um, How much is it? I think it's about $700 or something. So it's, it's pretty expensive, but you're essentially just paying the fees for the trainers to be able to train you up. And it's a, Mm. it's very extensive. I think it was three times a week for a month. I want to unpack this more in the, the unstructured section. I have lots of questions. Wow. I didn't know that. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, that was my main thing. I think that's where I got comfortable talking to people going through mental health crises. That's where I feel that I developed a lot of my counseling skills more than anything. Probably that's where I developed my confidence or at least Mm -hmm. the confidence to know that I can maintain a conversation. I remember in honors, it was like, what do I even talk about for an hour (laughs) with someone? Um, But as well as that, I would say that not everyone who got into masters did have experience and they probably did something similar to what I did in the other areas, which is leveraging your other skills and qualities and competencies. So some of the examples of that are, you know, I would say things like, oh, I've learned to work with diverse populations and I've learned to work um, from a warm and empathetic empathetic approach, Mm -hmm. talking about perhaps feedback that you got on assignments. I think in some of my application, I used um, feedback from a CBT assessment in honours. So utilising the skills and experience doesn't necessarily mean it's coming from your workplaces. That's interesting. But it can also just be how you're seen by other people, the skills that you may have picked up. The more kind of analytical you can be with... I guess, the experiences that you've had and not just kind of going, oh, well, I worked this job, so I'm qualified or whatnot. I think that that can carry you a long way because they're not just looking for someone who has worked in the field. Mm. They're, they're more interested in the person underneath it. Very nice. All right, so the next question was, what was the application process like for you? The application process involved a written component, which was due late September through to end of October. So that was just applying with these applications, which I'm sure we'll go into depth with at a later point. Mm -hmm. But for now, yeah, written application due then, sent out with my CV. So I, from the written applications, I got three interview offers. Actually, I got four interview offers. For what programs? For, I mean, all of those interviews were for the Master of Clinical Psychology. And yeah, I think I did three of those interviews. Um, Were they all in person? No, actually. So the first interview I had was 
online. Uh-huh. So just a Zoom. Yep. Then I had a two in-person interviews. Okay. And then I was offered a, a third in-person interview. But by that point, I had gotten into the program that I knew I wanted to accept. So you didn't do it. I didn't didn't feel like I needed to. Yeah. So, um, yes, did the interview. They all are very different in nature, those interviews as well. That mm-hmm. could be a, a whole episode, which I am sure that you'll probably be getting to. Mm-hmm. And as well as that, I'm going to be careful what I say because they do make a sign and an NDA about the contents of some of those interviews. Mm. But yeah, after that, it was just sit and wait. So you got three Masters of Clinical Psychology interviews? Sorry, offers. No, two offers. Uh, th- so I got three offers. Uh-huh. Two of them were for clinical psych and one of them was for professional got psychology. It. Okay. That's a lot of offers. Yeah, I was very... Uh, Sought after. I was going to say lucky, but... (laughs) No, you deserved it. One more thing that I will add on this, and it's just a little tip, like perhaps a a teaser for that other episode we put out, but my tip for people who are going through the application process is to truly dedicate some time and attention to it. I know that a lot of people during honours got caught up in their thesis, but really the application for masters is the reason that a lot of people are doing it. So I think I put a lot of time and effort into trying to get them right. Mm. And I think that that paid dividends for me. Which is often why I think that most people who are in the course had like a year off where they were able to dedicate more time and effort to that application. Yeah. Whereas when you're in honours, like you're trying to deal like with so much. So you honestly don't have much time at all. Yeah, to, to you, feel, to that. you feel so under the pump with your thesis that mm. master's applications seem like they're getting in the way of that. And you're doing so much writing, it's just, yeah, the last thing you want to do. Yeah, and it takes a lot of thinking. It's not something which you can just smash out in, like, an hour. Exactly. All right. So, getting to the end of structured questions now. Did you want to acknowledge any privileges that may have helped you get into Masters? Yes, um, absolutely. So, I was very lucky in many ways, I suppose, but one of the first ones that comes to my mind is that I had the privilege of living with my parents at the time. So I was still living at home with my parents and that meant that I didn't have to work to make ends meet. It meant that I had support of them making me dinners Mm. and honestly just when I was in a hole doing my thesis, they Mm. would bring me like lunch and things like that. So I'm very privileged with the parents I have, first of all. Um, I think that also can come down to, like I said, socioeconomic status, Mm. being lucky in that way that... We weren't working to keep, or I wasn't working to feel like I needed to stay afloat and I could fully dedicate myself to my to my thesis and all the things that are involved. As well as that, I think um, this is more of a general one, but as a Caucasian male, I did are not... <laughs> yeah, no, if no one knows, um, <laughs> as a Caucasian male, I didn't face a lot of the systemic barriers that's a privilege and that it's allowed me to get to the position I am in today. So now for me, it's just about making sure that I use this privilege in a way that hopefully can, I don't know, be And you are helping people like with that privilege, which yeah. is nice. And it's nice to acknowledge it. And it's why I wanted to include it as one of the structured questions because... It is a good question. There's a lot of privilege, I think, in people who mm. get into the master's programs and often people who don't have those same privileges can feel really kind of shitty about themselves because they just internalise it and think that it's just them. Yeah. But there's actually so much more that goes into it than just the 
the individual. And I guess extending on that, it's not just to get through honours, but it's the fact that at the end of honours, I wasn't run out of money so that I couldn't do the masters. So mm-hmm. obviously the masters entails a lot of unpaid work and it's very demanding and it's hard to work around that schedule. So yeah. um, it afforded me the opportunity to be able to do this program. And now, yeah, like you said, I'm very interested in transcultural mental health. Mm. I've been going to, I've been lucky to do some PDs at my placements, the courageous conversations about race PDs, and they were amazing experiences. Mm. So it really secured my position on, um, I suppose, the conversation. Love it. Love to hear it. Well, that brings us to the end of the structured questions. And now I just want to talk more like generally about your experience and like, dive into a few things that I had questions about. This makes me nervous. (laughs) So I I did break my rules and I did already ask you like some questions. So that's fine. Um, (laughs) All right. Going back to that lifeline thing. So like with your experience, like how did you know, first of all, what experience to get? Like, how did you know where to go? What organizations were good? Like how do people figure that out? Well, much like the reason that we have this podcast, it was it was almost entirely word of mouth. Mm. So I think I'd heard whispers about people doing it. I think they may have mentioned it. We at my uni had these like honours information evenings and master's information evenings where they would just have a current honours and master's student come and talk about their experiences. So I think I heard about it through there as one, mm. but also through, yeah, some of my friends, um, who if they weren't volunteering at Lifeline, they talked about wanting to or they showed their interest in volunteering at Lifeline and they mentioned it to me. I think I was a last-minute applicant to the to the volunteering thing because they actually, they're in quite high demand. They can't, they can't take on everyone, so you do have to apply to be a volunteer and wow. to complete the training. Yeah. That's crazy. Because I know there's things like ABA therapy and I remember I was looking into like trying to get psych experience as well. And then I saw ABA therapy and you had to pay like, what, like $1,000 to be trained. And I'm like, this is a pyramid scheme. (laughs) (laughs) And and there was like no way that someone could make me pay to be like a volunteer. Do you know what I mean? And I understand that it's like covering the training but it's not like accessible for everyone and it's just... It's not. You're paying that $700 and then you're giving up a bunch of like free labor and free time which Mm. again is very privileged um so yeah that was so interesting to me that you had to pay that much um i think um yeah it's something which obviously it depends on the person how long a piece of string but i would say if you have capacity if you're someone who isn't feeling financially constrained at the moment there's not many of us in the current (laughs) but yeah the training is incredible it's Mm. um super beneficial the work itself is very rewarding. Mm-hmm. You know, you have some... I, I had some incredible experiences volunteering for Lifeline. So one of those experiences that can have an effect on who you are as a person. Mm. So very How fortunate, many, very privileged, yeah. but if you have the capacity, I would recommend it. How often do you have to volunteer? Like, what does that schedule and oh, look um, like? And so what does the training look like as well? The training is phenomenal. The training is... So I did a fast-track program which consisted of... I think three times a week for a month Mm -hmm. and it was in January. So it was right before um, starting uni and things like that, which Mm -hmm. was great. They have the other ones, which I think are just on Saturday morning. So it takes much longer, but same number of sessions. Right. 
kind of hard to describe the training. Um, I might not as well because I, I don't want to. Yeah. But I would say that, you know, you do that training and then you go through quite a bit of assessment to make sure that you're competent to. Like testing? Sort of, not like exams, um, essentially role playing. Okay. So you did a number of role plays that were assessed to make sure that you were competent to be on the right. phones. And then once you were on the phones, you did a bunch of observed shifts. So I think my first five shifts were entirely observed, like all four hours. I can see how universities would really value that because it's like that competency is already kind of ticked off for them. They're like, okay, I know this person can actually, you know, do the basic kind of things of yeah. counseling and those and kind of skills. Yeah. Again, it probably helps to sort of show your commitment and that you're not just, you know, um, kind of winging it through here. You do have a passion for psychology and you've pursued experience in some way or another. And yeah. Very cool. And then I think um, after that, you have to upkeep a certain amount of hours over the year to maintain your crisis supporter accreditation. Mm. But I can't remember off the top of my head what that is. Mm. Very cool. And we, I mean, we were talking about in our first episode how, like, comparing your OP and then how you did so well in honours. And I'm like, we'll do a separate episode in this and really deep dive into what's helped you and your study tips and whatnot. But how would you kind of summarise, I guess, your master's experience? Is it what you thought it was? Like, yeah. Oh, I don't think it's what I thought it was, but it's been great in a lot of ways mm. and it's been brutal in a lot of ways what's been the best part oh the people probably um my co-host <laughs> um, yeah because i moved to brisbane this year so we wouldn't have crossed circles ever if it wasn't crossed circles yeah <laughs> the people We're do in that? different circles we wouldn't have crossed paths yeah we wouldn't have <laughs> paths. so yeah um, the people yeah getting back to the question the people, like, I just adore everyone in, in the cohorts. I think that they're, they're the kinds of people that I like to surround myself with. I think the personal change, um, I don't know if that comes from seeing clients or the learnings, but I don't know. I feel like I've really consolidated some of my own, like, identity and self-concept throughout this course. Mm-hmm. Um, I felt more reassured of who I am because you spend so much time reflecting on it. You spend so much time on reflecting internally on you and generally you do that in a site context, but I think that has to generalise to just life in itself. So I I love the personal transformation. Looking back, is there anything you regret about your journey or anything that you would change, do differently? I wasn't prepared for that question. What would I do differently? Because you had a pretty straightforward journey. Would you have wanted to take some time off? Um, it's, it's hard to say because I feel very privileged to have gotten into the program. So Mm. to be like, oh, I would have taken a a year off after honors feels like a, a lucky thing to be able to say. I think that I have done just a lot of straight through study and in my ideal scenario, I would have done a bit more, um, yeah, exploring and, you know, gap year like things and traveling and things like that. Mm. But but there's always space for that, hopefully now, hopefully soon. Yeah. Um, what would you tell your honours or third year self? Transport yourself back to that time. Um, it's funny to say it now because I'm still doing them, but I won't be doing assignments forever because assignments, 
Yeah, I, I don't think I've been a very natural student. I think I've had to very much mold myself towards the academic pathway and it's been tough sometimes. Mm. So I think that would have been very reassuring for me is to know that the work of being a psychologist is not the work of doing assignments in psychology. Mm. What drew you to psychology and why did you want to go down this path? Well, unlike a lot of people out there, we didn't get offered psychology as a high school um, subject. subject. Yeah, mm. I am very jealous of people who had that option. Would you um, have done it in high school? Probably, yeah. I mean, I don't know, but I, I did it in uni as a, oh, that sounds interesting. I didn't know what I wanted to do after high school. But like, why did psych, like, why did you choose it? Because you chose it as a double, in a double degree, right? So yeah, well, I started originally just in psychology and then oh. moved to the double degree. Why did you move? A couple of things. Psychology seems interesting. Uh-huh. Just, I think it's it a unique sort of subject. Relevant to everyone. Yeah, exactly. Like. Um, and whether we like to admit it or not, we always get into it because of like personal interest, I feel like in a way, like it's yeah, interesting. Yeah, absolutely. And... I think the reason that I didn't pursue it, though, is because I didn't think I had the chops for it. The whole undergrad, I never thought I was, you know, smart enough to do an honours or a thesis or master's. You know, I look at people, I look to people who were therapists and I'm like, that is so far-fetched to me right now. Mm. It just seemed ridiculous to even aim for that. Um, Here you are with three offers. There I am, tricking everyone. Um... (laughs) So at the end of my degree, I kind of thought, you know, do I take the safe option and just try to get a job in business and see where it takes me? Or do I roll the dice and see what I'm capable of, see if I do have what it takes, and then at least if I do fail, I can say that I'd try it. Mm. Um, very fortunate for me, things worked out. I've gotten here. You worked hard for it. Yeah, no, I, I gave it my everything and it was... It was my everything. I'll give. I'll say that there was mm. no um, there was no energy left in the tank, if that makes sense. What was the hardest year for you? Honors, hundred <laughs> percent. Honors was busy, but it was busy because you had to get perfect grades. Mm. You had to try to perfect every assignment and get a seven and get to the highest, and it was super competitive. So you were competing with everyone around you. Mm. Yeah, that's the reason that you didn't get a break. Masters, they don't care what grades you get, mm. just as long as you pass and do well with your clients. Mm. But it's a much busier program, mm. I would say. You have so much different things that you're kind of juggling, whether it's client work, whether it's supervision, whether it's coursework. Work. Work, work. Um, so it becomes very much your lifestyle, but at least then you don't have to crucify yourself trying to get straight sevens. Mm. And for me, um, the stress I felt in honours, the pressure that I was under, it's not a comparison. Honours sucked. How did you feel at the end? Were you burnt out? It's just a, yeah, it's exhausting. Mm. You, it is your identity for a year, mm. at least in my experience. I think I might have struggled more than some people in terms of how hard I, how so much I So what did you work. cut out? Like what did your day-to-day look like in honours? You know what? My day-to-day looked like working on my thesis until I had to do an assignment. So if I was, you know, a week or two out from doing an assignment, that would get all my attention until I finished. And then the second I finished, catch half a breath and then go and keep working on my thesis. Mm. So it looked like that for probably the six months from March through to October or whatnot. Mm. 
Well, I think that's almost towards the end of our episode. Did Is there anything that I didn't ask you today that you would have wanted to talk about? What I would say for anyone who wants to do the Master of Clinical Psychology is that I think that this area of endorsement gets a lot of prestige. Mm. If you ask most undergrads who want to become psychologists, they'll say they want to become clinical psychologists. Mm. But in reality, anyone who graduates from a Master of Psychology becomes a generally registered psychologist. And 90% of those competencies overlap. So I think that there can sometimes be a bit of a headspace of, you know, if I don't get into the Master of ClinPsych, then I don't want to do any other program. Why did you choose ClinPsych over the other endorsement areas? Was there that prestige kind of going into it? I'm sure to some capacity it would have influenced me. Mm. Um, I, again, I guess thinking about I did this wanting to see what I'm capable of and perhaps I saw that as like the holy grail and destination for psychology. Mm. But now that you're on the other side, you're like, ah. Yeah, and the example that I think of is the fact that, you know, in educational and developmental psychology, the other masters at our university versus the clinical psychology, there's a lot of differences in terms of the workforce, you know, Medicare rebates, the sort of presentations they may work with, I suppose. Yeah. But despite that, I think we've done 12 out of the 16 units and masters together. Mm. So how different specialties can you really come out with at the end of it? And the research even says that in terms of your competency as a psychologist, it doesn't really matter where you graduate from, what mm. university. Mm. Yeah. So I think sometimes the um, the nuts and bolts of getting the perfect program is overstated. Mm. Well, thank you so much for that, Josh. I thought that was very useful and hopefully everyone else finds that very useful. So that brings us to the end of this guest series. We're going to be having more guests on in the future. Maybe I might be one in the future. Yeah, we'll flip the the roles. Yeah. But again, if you have any suggestions on who you'd like to see, if you're a master's student out there, if you're in an endorsement area like organizational psych, health psych, sports psych, sports psych. psych. Oh my God. Yes. There's only like 186, um, like endorsed sports psychs, I think out there. Oh no, that was forensic. I don't remember. We can, we can head off the UQ students. Yeah. If you're doing forensic psych, like please email us at mentalstatuspodcast at gmail.com. If you'd like to follow me, Gash on my TikTok, it's at Aussie psych student. I'll have it linked in the show notes as well. And if you'd like to follow me, Josh, at nothing, (laughs) (laughs) he is an old man and doesn't social media. (laughs) Um, But yeah, thanks so much for listening again. And hopefully we'll see you next time.